Well, this last week was week two of Spanish class for Sue and I. Why is that funny? Me llama David, eh, tú? Hey, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. that means my name is David, and what is yours? And, uh, and then after you introduce, you say, mucho gusto, mucho gusto, which means uh, it's a great pleasure. What's that? Uh, I think so. And uh, <laughs> I tried that out. I'm, I'm, every time I see a Hispanic person, <laughs> but these are people that I have kind of, you know, been around. Like I go to McDonald's kind of frequently, and uh... <laughs> now I've learned something from Jeff. And I'll, on a serious note, I'll pass this on to you. He said, "Folks who are are new immigrants in our country, they think it's a big deal when you stop to take notice of them." And maybe some people don't because they're scared or they don't know how to make Yama David, but uh, whatever it is. So I've tried to do that a little bit, and I'm getting better at it because he's really good at it. And so at McDonald's, one of the guys that I've been nodding to, and he, he, when I come in, he always looks for me. And so this week I said, hey, I'm learning Spanish. Me llamo David, ¿eh tú? And he says, Maximo. I said, yeah, my first Spanish conversation. <laughs> yeah! And he looked at me just the way you are. It was kind of like, oh, Lord, have mercy. (laughs) Another gringo learning Spanish, you know. Have mercy. My wife used her few phrase or phrases, and the woman she spoke to just went in Spanish. And my wife's going, whoa, (laughs) back that train up. Uh, yeah, yeah. Como, como. That means what, what, what? God wants us to know Him, and we don't speak His language. And so He sent Jesus. That's what we learn in John chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to start in verse 14 to catch the context here. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We were able to see the Father through the glory of the Son. Verse 15, John, John the Baptist, bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I have said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And we want to look just at that verse 18 today. As we consider verse 14, we we see the incarnation of Christ. Christ became incarnate. Literally, He took on flesh And he forever exists as a dual-natured person, a human and a divine person together. He's the only person who has ever existed that way, or whoever will exist that way. We are going to have an eternal existence, but not a divine existence as he does. He became incarnate. He took on flesh, and we beheld his glory, the scripture says. Then secondly, we we learned about the impact of Christ. He was full of grace and truth, and of his fullness we have received. 
we get to partake in the divine character of Christ. We get to be like Him. We don't get to be God, but we get to have that wonderful character, which I think is summarized in the fruit of the Spirit, of love and joy and peace, and of course an eternal home in heaven with God. And this week we're going to learn about the instruction of Christ. What does He teach us? We see in verse 18, what He teaches us is what God the Father is like. Now when we read the phrase, No one has seen God at any time. There are a couple of foundational concepts we need to understand. And the first is this. God is a spirit being. That does not mean he is an impersonal force. He is a spirit person. If you've never stopped to consider what makes a person, it's these things. Mind, will, and emotion. When Genesis chapter 1 and 2 tells us that we are created in the image of God, what it means is we were created as persons. Animals are not persons. I love my dog. My dad probably disagrees with me about whether or not he's a person. But he is a dog. As wonderful as he is, he is not a person in the same sense that I am which is in the image or in the reflection of God. God is a person. But God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit in eternity past, as we would think about it before the creation of this world, existed as spirit beings. There was no physical body, no visible essence to God. And that is an important concept. God is a spirit being. John 4.24 says, God is a spirit and those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that very simply means that it is about you, the person, and your heart and mind, and not just the physical actions that matter to God. Number two, God uses human characteristics to describe His interactions with us. God uses human characteristics to describe His interactions with us. Um, If you go to 2 Timothy 3.16, you will find that all Scripture is god breathed does god have breath like we physically have breath no does god have a mouth like we physically have a mouth no he does not why would god say that scripture is god breathed because he wants us to understand it came right it's just like it came right out of his mouth to us humans we understand that that's his very word that's what he's trying to get to us but he doesn't have a mouth he's not a physical being There's a fancy theological term you can memorize and stun your friends and neighbors with tomorrow. What'd you you do this week? Well, I went to church. What'd you learn? I learned about anthropomorphism. It's a Greek, two Greek words, anthropos, which is human, and morphism, which or morph, which is form. And it's the theological term that we use to apply to these descriptions of God with human characteristics. We're going to see one when we go to the Old Testament in just a minute, which is this, that God spoke to Moses face to face. But God doesn't have a face like a human face. Now, I know Jesus took on a human body. That's, I'm not talking about Jesus right now. I'm talking about God the Father. So these are foundational concepts we must understand. Is that all that this means when it says... No one has ever seen God. He's a spirit being, so nobody's ever seen Him. No, that's not what it means. But these are foundational concepts that we need to keep in mind as we now go to Exodus 33. Turn with me, please, to Exodus 33. 
there were several people in the Old Testament who had very personal kinds of interaction with God, and this is perhaps the most famous of those in Exodus 33, verse 9. Exodus 33, verse 9. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked to Moses. Did Moses hear a voice from heaven? Yes, he did. God spoke to Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle of the door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And Moses would return to the camp, and his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Now, if you, if you like a mystery like I do, you'd say, wait a minute. The Apostle John just said, no man's ever seen God. And, and John wrote several thousand years after this happened. He says, no man has ever seen God. But that tells me Moses talked face to face to God. So what's going on here? Let's continue on in, the, in, the, in Exodus thirty-three twelve. Then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people. Oh, excuse me, let's drop down now from there. We need to skip the, the part of this and drop down to verse 18. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Now, I just want to stop right there and say this. Moses talked to God face to face, and yet now he says, please show me your glory. What does that tell me about the phrase face to face? It's not meaning the same thing it means to me. Follow along. Verse 18, please show me your glory. Then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Well, now it sounds like God's talking double talk, doesn't it? They talk face to face, but now he says, you cannot see me face to face. For no man shall see me face to face and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, and so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. We're starting to get the idea here, which is this. God is not just another person like my friend who I go, hey, bud, what's going on? He says, look, nobody looks me in the face and lives. We'll, we'll see that in a minute, why that is. But what he says to Moses, again, God doesn't have hands. God doesn't have a back and a front. He is but he says, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in a, in a cleft in the rock, and I'm going to cover you up so you cannot see me. And I'm going to pass by, and when I am gone, I'm going to take my hand away, and you're going to see the effect of me walking down the street. And you know what that did to Moses? 
it made his face shine like a light bulb so bright that the rest of the Jewish people, the people of Israel, could not stand to look at him. They, 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 couldn't, they physically couldn't stand to look at it, so he put a veil so they wouldn't be blinded by the light. And that was just the effect of God or the afterglow what does God mean when he says, I'm going to make my glory pass by? The glory of God is the sum total of who he is and what he is. And if we were to hone that right down to a very small summary, we would say this. We would quote God saying, you be holy for I am holy. God is completely perfectly righteous and that character shines forth in a glory we can't perceive at this point and we are not permitted to see at this point because according to this no man can see me and live in other words my glory would consume you now Look at this verse from Numbers, which I think will help us with that phrase, God spoke to Moses face to face. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of the Lord. So what does it mean for God to speak face to face to Moses? It means that God speaks right in his hearing, and he speaks very plainly and clearly. Do You know, some of the time when God was speaking to Moses, what did the children of Israel hear? They heard thundering and lightning. And God did not speak clearly to them, but he spoke face to face with Moses. He talked directly to him. So it does not mean that Moses saw him face to face. It means that Moses heard him clearly and God communicated clearly to Moses. But Moses did not see God. Moses came as close as any human being has ever come, but he didn't see God. Now there's another person in the Old Testament, and that's Isaiah, who had a vision of God. And I think his vision of God helps us to understand why we cannot look on the face of God in our present condition. Listen to Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his, temple, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. That's a name for a, a, a type of an angel. Above it stood seraphim. Each, had, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. Have you ever been in, in a place where they had a giant pipe organ and they opened up the louvers, and the whole place kind of vibrated. I love that. When those angels cried out, holy, 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 you could feel it. The whole place was alive with it. They were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me! This is what Isaiah did, what he said, what he thought, when he saw the vision of God. Woe is me, for I am undone! In other words, I'm in trouble! Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah didn't say, oh, hey, there's God. Hey, God, how you doing? Run up and pat him on the back. He went, man, I'm, I'm in bad shape here. And Isaiah was a prophet of God. He wasn't a garden variety sinner. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. What was Isaiah's problem? Why was he scared at the sight of God? Because he was a sinner. And when he caught even a vision, not even a real face-to-face meeting with God, but a vision of God that God allowed him to have, he was terrified by it because he saw his own sin. Look at these words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, verse 3. That was what he saw. And then verse 5. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, he saw this in a vision. Isaiah saw the Lord only in a vision, and he was so fearfully aware of his sinful inadequacy that he feared for his life. That's what God means when he says, no man can see me and live. It tells us something about the awesomeness of God, the the terrifying nature of holiness. That when sin comes into the presence of holiness, it just cannot exist. God can't let sin be in his presence. Will we ever see God? Some of you are asking this question already. I'm reading your mind. You're thinking, well, aren't we going to see God in heaven someday? You're absolutely right. 1 John chapter 3 says this. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And, and by the way, we talk to God like, like Moses did, sort of face to face, don't we? The Hebrews... Chapter 10 tells us that, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace to ask for help. And uh, it was at Romans, uh, Romans 7, Romans 8 that says we cry out, Abba, Father, or Daddy. We have a close relationship with Him, but we have not seen Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He, Jesus Christ, is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. What is that talking about? It's talking about the great truth of the Scripture, which is this. When you, ex- when you are an unbeliever, you are totally in sin. When you accept Christ as your Savior, your sin is forgiven and taken from you. And when God looks at you, He sees you through the blood of Christ. And if you die at any moment, He sees you through the blood of Christ. You're righteous, ready to go to heaven. And at that moment that you leave this earth, either in the rapture or at your death... God wipes away the rest of your sinful nature on the basis of the blood of Christ. And when you stand there, you will be able to see him because you will be just as righteous as Jesus. You will stand with God. You will stand with Jesus before God because you're clean. That is the future tense of our sanctification first john 3 2 goes on verse 3 goes on to say the one who has this hope purifies himself now god says our job now is to be saying no to sin and yes to righteousness to becoming more like christ every day it is how we prepare ourselves to meet him but god is going to scrub us clean in that in that moment in that twinkling of an eye when we are translated to heaven Moses did not see God. Isaiah did not see God. The Apostle John did not see God. Before this was written at this point in time in John chapter 1, and he says, no man has seen God at any time. 
But the good news of, first, of John chapter 1 is this. Even though we cannot physically see God, we cannot be personally face-to-face with Him, we can talk with Him as one talks with a friend, but we can see what God is like by looking at Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. God's delight is the person, Jesus Christ. God delights in Him. They have a close relationship. That's what we're being told here in this verse. The first phrase that is used, the only begotten Son, tells us this. Jesus can declare God, or He can show us God, because He is the God-man. He is the God-man. He is the only person who the only person in human existence who has ever been face to face with God. He's the only person who knows what God is like. And so he declares him to us. What does this phrase the only begotten mean? Well, it certainly sends us back to, to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the glory His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Now in this verse it uses the little word as in there. As of the only begotten. The phrase only begotten literally means something like an only child. An only child. It is certainly not trying to tell us that God the Son was born or started an existence out of God the Father. There is a very popular religion which would teach us that there are spirit children waiting to be born to come into the world. And in the origin of this world, there was God the Father and all of His spirit children sitting around the table, one of which was the person, Jesus Christ. And of course, those spirit children were born to God the Father through the agency of God the Father and God the Mother. And all of those spirit children were around the table, one of which was Jesus, another which was Lucifer, and so on. This scripture does not teach us that Jesus was born out of God the Father. It's not what it means. As to his human nature, he was the only human being whom the Holy Spirit conceived together with a human so that out of Mary came the God-man. He is the only one of that type. He is the only child, if you will, of that type. And the comparison that's being drawn for us here is this. He has the glory or the unique place of an only child. And he has the glory of an, of an only child to God the Father. It's not trying to tell us that he he was born from God the Father. His human nature was, but not him as a person, as as a divine, eternal person. The second thing that we understand here, so we understand that Jesus can declare God because he is the God man. Secondly, we understand Jesus can declare God because he is uniquely close to God. Look at the phrase that's used. He is in the bosom of the Father. Bosom is talking about this area of the human body, and it's not talking particularly about the skin. It's talking about the 
the, the closeness that two people have when they are when they are close to each other, and it's making a reference to the to what we would call the Middle Eastern or properly the Oriental custom of eating and how people ate in the time of Christ. And uh, one author put it this way, and I'll just quote from him because he uh, says it better than I can. The table was made by three pieces, raised like ours, and the place was so and placed so as to form a square with a clear space in the middle and one end open. On the sides of them were placed cushions capable of containing three or more persons. On these cushions, the guests reclined, leaning on their left side with their feet extended from the table and so lying that the head of one was naturally reclining on the bosom of another. To recline near to one in this manner denoted intimacy, and was what was meant by lying in the bosom of another. The picture in your mind of the Last Supper is incorrect. Jesus did not sit on a chair. People did not sit on chairs at table. They, they reclined at table. And if I was younger, I would lay down and show you, but I don't feel like getting down and getting back up again, you know. But they sat like this. It, it, not that comfortable to me to eat like this, because eventually you're going to get tired here, but they laid on this one and they ate with this one. And the table was here, and their feet were there. When you hear the woman coming to wash Jesus' feet while they were sitting at dinner, his feet were sticking out like everybody else's feet were sticking out. Now, there could be some social reasons for that, some customary reasons for that. I don't know. They didn't consider feet to be something to be put under a table, kind of kept away, you know. Um, The right hand is the good hand. All of those kinds of things may have factored into it. But that's how they ate. And so the guy behind you, you know, if you lean back, you're right there in his face. Now, to us, we're going, ew. You know, my kids don't even want their food touching each other on the plate, much less people while they're eating. I know you can't understand that, but that's how they ate. When we read about Jesus and the disciple whom he loved, who was leaning on his bosom at the Last Supper, and and he says to him, who's the guy that's going to betray you? He was literally, he was just right there, okay, And that was their custom. And so when we read this phrase, he is in the bosom of the Father, it's where we get our phrase, bosom buddies. It's the idea that they were physically close. They were were close people. Jesus can declare God because he is uniquely close to God. God the Son is the only one who holds such a place of intimate relationship with God the Father. That's what he's telling us. He's saying, look, Jesus is, in a, is a unique person in a unique position to help us understand who God is. And so Jesus is called the one who declares God to us. I put the Greek word exegete there. Some of you who have studied the Bible a little bit, maybe been to Bible college, you know the word exegete. We use it to refer to preaching as the exegesis of the text. What does that mean? It literally means to tell the story or to teach the lesson to take out, of, out of, take out of the truth and share it with other people. Jesus is called the exegete of God. He is the preacher of God, the declarer of God. And again, we've said this before, but I want to say it again. John 1, 1 through 18 is an introduction to the whole book. So in part, what we're seeing here is, Part of the reason for the Gospel of John is that Jesus is going to teach us about the person of God the Father. He's going to exegete God the Father to us, and we are going to understand Him better. That's not the only purpose for the book, but that is clearly one of them. 
And so you should be looking in the Gospel of John to learn about God the Father. How do you do that? By looking at Jesus. And I want to share with you five ways, in a summary form, if you will, of how Jesus teaches us about God in this book. And the first one is this. God is personal. God is personal. He is not a force. He is not just the the energy of the universe. There are are a number of religions which would teach us that God is in everything. He's sort of the force that moves things around. And while God is everywhere present, he is not just a force, he is a person. How do I know this? We see Jesus on this earth having relationships with people. We see him being happy, being sad. We see him interacting with people. Jesus was a person. John, who writes this gospel, is called the the disciple who Jesus loved. Does that mean he was the teacher's pet? Yeah. Does that mean that's sinful? No. Why would he be the teacher's pet? Let me give you my idea. I think he was the most spiritual of the bunch. And Jesus thought, well, this guy really gets it. And he loved him. Doesn't mean he didn't love the others. Doesn't mean he wasn't patient with the others. Doesn't mean he didn't let the others go on with ministry. But he loved John. He had a personal relationship with John. As all of us who know him have a personal relationship with him. We know him in a personal way. So God is a person. He is not just a force. Number two, what is... What do we learn about God from Jesus in this book? God is powerful. God is powerful. When you see Jesus do miracles, just stop and say, that's the power of God. In fact, Jesus says that at times. He says, I couldn't do anything if God didn't give me the power to do so. He's he's indicating that they're in this together. Jesus does miracles and shows his power over the physical universe. You know, he calmed the stormy sea. He does miracles over human life, everything from healing all the way up to raising people from the dead. And he does miracles over the human soul. People's lives were drastically changed. And and, and a very simple one to think about along that line is Matthew, the tax collector, and Peter, who was a zealot. Think of those two guys on the same board Yeah. Does God change lives? Oh, you bet. Starting with those 12 or those 11, one of them wouldn't change. Judas. God is powerful. Number three, God is patient. Think with me about Judas for a minute. Here we are at the Last Supper. That's where the scripture is set. Matthew 26, 21, and 25. They're at the Last Supper. Judas has already agreed with the leaders that he is going to, he took 30 pieces of silver and he's going to betray Jesus. He's going to sell him out, if you will. And uh, here's what Jesus says. Now, as they were eating, Jesus said to the whole group, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, if you were Judas, wouldn't your ears perk up? He knows what I'm going to do. I mean, that's how dense the apostles were while they were still disciples with Jesus. They didn't know, they didn't grasp that he was the Son of God. Of course he knew what Judas was going to do. And so he announces it. Why does he announce it? In part, because Judas says, 
Rabbi, is it I? (laughs) What is this? Judas playing fast and loose with power? He's going, is it me? And Jesus says, you have said it. Now, why would Jesus do that? That was Judas' last chance to turn around. Is God going to warn you about your sin before your life collapses? Oh, yeah. And from what I've seen in my life and other lives, he's going to warn you over and over and over. And he warned Judas. How patient is that? I mean, Judas has been with him for three years. He knew his heart. And yet he still goes, hey, Judas, not too late. And while I've called this the last chance, you know, I would almost say Judas had one more chance, and that was when he came to remorse. He realized what he had done. He came and he threw the money back to the people who gave it to him, and they said, eh, that's your problem. And he went out and hanged himself. But even in that moment of remorse, he could have turned around. God is patient. God will be patient with you up to the moment of your death, whether you deserve it or not. What do you mean by that? What I mean is you can still accept Christ. I'm not recommending that you wait. You know why? Because you don't know when the moment of your death is going to be. You might be driving over Snoqualmie Pass or Stevens Pass, and a great big rock might squash you flat as a bug, like it did three people a few weeks ago. So I'd advise you not to wait to accept Christ as your Savior, because you do not know what tomorrow brings. That's what James tells us. But God is patient. If you're sitting here right now and you've never accepted Christ, you ought to be thanking God He's patient with you because you have a chance right now and you should not pass it by. The next thing we learn about God is this. God is particular. He is particular. What do I mean by that? Something like this. When Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am one of the ways to heaven. Is that what He said? I am which way? The way. I am... One of the kinds of truth by which you can run your life. Is that right? No, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, while that is written in a negative way, I love to turn it around and say it this way. Any man can come to the Father but by Jesus. But God is particular. He will not let you into heaven by some other way. God is righteous, and he expects you to become righteous, and there's only one way you can become righteous, that is by putting your faith in Christ, and by his work then taking away all of your sin and giving you a new life. God is particular. Lastly, God is passionate. God is passionate. Listen to this verse from Luke 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You know when Jesus is saying that? He's sitting outside of Jerusalem looking at the city. And this is, this is toward the toward the two-thirds mark or so, or maybe later in his ministry. And he's looking out there going... I, I was calling you to myself. I wanted to bring you to myself. I loved you. And you said, see ya. Don't want nothing to do with you. But you need to know that John 3.16 is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. 
one of my claims to fame and that of my wife is that we know former Governor Gary Locke. Oh yeah, just like that. Just like that, yeah. Gary Locke, when he was running for King County Executive the first time, came to dinner at the, at the annual fire department dinner of one of the departments I was involved with. And because I wasn't smart enough to get there and sit somewhere else, I got seated at the head table. So that was me and her and all the politicians and their wives. Yeah, me and Ron Sims. Oh, yeah. Do I know Gary Locke? No. Let me ask you something. Do you know God? Do you know God like I know Gary Locke? Or do you know God like I know God? And I'm not bragging about that. It's a work that he's done in my life. Greatest privilege you can have is to be close to God. You cannot see Him with your eyes, but you can know Him with your heart and your life. You can speak to Him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I pray that you will be getting deeply acquainted with Jesus and thereby getting to know your Heavenly Father as we study this book of John. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do know you and I do feel like you're an old friend and I'm thankful for that. Even though I've never seen you face to face, I look forward to that day. What a great privilege you've given us. Father, I pray for everyone here that they know you in that face-to-face kind of way, that they truly know you. And that if they don't, that today will be the day they start to know you as they put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Work among us, Father, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.